I wanted to make a few comments before we jump into Matthew 6 just about the, the building and what's going on here. Um, the building is never about the building. I mean, the church is people. But we really have felt led over the last season to really give feet to our theology. We believe that God makes everything new. And so this building is, is kind of part of that. Like we want this to be a place that reflects both the, the beauty and the skills that God has given us, but also renewal that happens through the gospel. I mean, it's, um, I'm actually overwhelmed as we we're worshiping today and just looking at the white and just the, the scripture from Isaiah 1 where it talks about our sins, though they were scarlet, become white as snow. And I, just the, the, both the purity that, that comes from seeing that. So I'm, I'm grateful for all of you that um, have served, all of you that will serve. I mean, this is, a, this is deeper than a building. This is about God doing something um, in us so that he can do something through us. And we just want to reflect that. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is going to be our last week in our Kingdom Culture series as we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at it, um, I just want to bring you in on a little secret. Um, One of my guilty pleasures actually is conspiracy theories. So um, not to worry you, I'm not trying to be the next Alex Jones. But I think that for me, probably this started when I was young and I could not look away at the tabloids, like when my parents would go through, you know, just the, the grocery store or Walmart or something like that, and you would see something about Elvis still being alive, and he's a short-order cook in Pennsylvania, you know, stuff like that. But I have, um, on my own, I've watched um, documentaries on 9-11 cover-ups, alien autopsies, like um, the JFK assassination, and all of these things, um, one of my favorite is that they actually faked the moon landing. Um, so I don't know if you've heard this one, but that, that, that instead of landing on the moon in 1969, that it was done on a Hollywood soundstage uh, for propaganda to use against the Russians. And so, um, uh, <laughs> and what came out of that, I think, was beautiful. Uh, in 2002, a conspiracy theorist came up to Buzz Aldrin, who was 72 at the time, and and told him that he was a coward um, and a liar for faking the moon landing. And um, he promptly punched him in the jaw. So uh, (laughs) all of that to say, like, I think that the the reason that conspiracy theories um, are kind of so much fun to engage in is because they portray this secret world, you know, that, that kind of is going on behind the scenes that you can try to get into and underneath. And um, that's a little bit about what the kingdom of God is meant to be like. It's meant to be felt and experienced, but there is a thread of secrecy that runs throughout the kingdom of God. And there's a thread of secrecy that, that really goes throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we're going to talk about what does it mean for us to be radically generous people who give um, not to be seen and celebrated by people, not so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can model the kingdom of God on earth. That we're called to be those that give in secret because our Father in heaven rewards those that give in secret. And so we're going to just talk about how do we grow in being radically generous people. The truth is, before people ever hear about Jesus or meet Jesus, they should experience the generosity of God through the people of God. So we're going to talk about how do we grow in that. Because honestly, there is nothing probably in the United States of America that gives us more of an opportunity to model the kingdom of God than how we deal 
with money and possessions and our finances. And so we're going to look at what does Jesus actually teach his disciples. So if we're going to follow in his footsteps and he's going to be our king and we're going to be members of this kingdom, what does that look like for us? It's deeper than just surface level giving. It's a generosity that flows from our hearts because of who God is and what he's done. And so we're going to look at several sections this morning and we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to look at verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, not if you give, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither... where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for just the reality of your kingdom, that we all have been beneficiaries of your radical generosity towards us. Thank you that as your people we have a chance to image you and reflect you to the world. I pray that this would not be an appeal to guilt or manipulation, but that you would perform a deep work among us as your people, that you would make us into the kind of people that delight to be generous um, towards those in need and towards the needs of your kingdom. To do that, we need you to perform a miracle inside of us that you would break through the lies of culture, that you would break through the lies of our upbringing, and that you would bring us face to face with our rabbi and our king Jesus, and that we would follow him with all of our life. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6 is this picture of devoted discipleship. I mean, if there's anything that the Sermon on the Mount does, I mean, it raises the bar, right? I mean, Following Jesus is more than coming to a meeting. It is about reorienting all of our life under the fact that Jesus is revealed to be the king of the universe. And there are no areas of our life that are hands off to our king. Trenton even wonderfully reminded of this 
uh, as we were giving. I mean, the fact that we belong to him, that he has purchased us with his own blood. And so not only does he own us like in our spiritual sense, but he owns us as people. Like we belong to him and as a people of his own possessions, we have a chance to model him and to show the world just how kind he is. The generosity of God is meant to be the defining characteristic of the people of God, right? People are meant to come into contact with the generosity of God. And the way that they do that primarily in the scriptures is through the generosity of his people. It's not just some abstract theological category where we talk about God being generous. No, the way that people understand God's generosity is by the way that we are generous towards them. And so God wants to do this deep work inside of us where we reflect who he is. As the people of God, we are a part of this upside-down kingdom where we get everything up front. God is lavishly generous towards us. In and through Jesus, up front, we receive the forgiveness of all of our sins. Up front, in and through Jesus, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and turn us away from things that once would cause death, now moves us to things that bring us life. So we possess the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are the people of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God, and He is a God of generosity, then the manifest evidence of God's Spirit coming to rest on His people is that we become radically generous with our lives. So we want to be able to reflect Him. The book of Ephesians says that we have received every spiritual blessing right now in and through Jesus. So this means that through Jesus, whether we are aware of it or not, He has met all of our needs, right? He has taken care of our greatest needs in being forgiven by Him, but also He has promised to provide for us and care for us as his children so we can view money and possessions as a way to see him high and lifted up and to reflect him in the world. When we encounter the generosity of God, we are praying something like this. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, right, I mean, there are no needs in heaven, right? I mean, they are all abundantly met by the generosity of God. And so when we're praying to become a kingdom culture that reflects God, what we're saying is, God, I pray that you make us into the kind of people who are generous so that there are no needy among us, right? And that's what you see inside of the early church. But in the United States of America, this is absolute warfare, right? Because every message that you're going to receive is going to be take care of me, take care of my family, take care of my stuff, right? And, and then, like, when all of those things are kind of met, then we're going to make sure that everybody else is cared for. In the kingdom of God, it's completely upside down. It says, I want you to look first to the needs of other people. And according to that, I will meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory. Tim Keller says this, he says, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. So as we enthrone God here, as we enthrone Jesus here, 
money is going to effortlessly flow to the things that we love. His kingdom, his purposes, those in need, right? And that's a radical reorientation from how we normally talk about giving inside the church. The question that pastors most often get are, how, how much should I give, right? And the answer is everything, right? Because everything belongs to him. We are his stewards. He's entrusted all of these things, right? And then he leads us by the power of his spirit to give to the things that reflect his heart and his nature and his character. So this brings me to my first point. A kingdom culture explicitly aims to expose people to the generosity of God through radical, radically generous disciples. Say that again. A kingdom culture explicitly aims to expose people to the generosity of God through being radically generous disciples. So we have an amazing opportunity before us. Like because if we become a people like Matthew chapter 6 talks about, Inside the United States of America, inside of Jonesboro, you know what's going to happen? Revival is going to break out, right? Because we are saying money is no longer our God. Security is no longer our God. God is our God, right? And that's something that's completely countercultural. So what Jesus is saying through these verses is radical generosity reveals where our treasure is and more specifically who our treasure is. And so this is about us as the people of God coming into contact with the king of the universe. Jesus unapologetically goes straight for the heart. And listen, he's talking to people that have to pray for their daily bread. People that are living from day to day. If they do not work and they do not get paid, they do not eat. And he's calling those kinds of people to be radically generous with their money and their possessions. So how much more as the most wealthy, and you should not feel guilty about this, I'm not trying to put guilt on you, but what a stewardship we have as the most wealthy generation in the history of the world, right? So we want to be those kinds of people. If that's for people that live from day to day, from hand to mouth, how much more for us as the people of God should generosity become the norm? Look at verses 1 through 4. He's trying to make a a, a compare and a contrast between those that are generous just to see other people and get the praise of men and those that are to give because that's what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, this is an assumption, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But here it is again. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what Jesus is doing in these verses is creating the foundation of a culture of good works, right? Now, the church gets this wrong lots of times and lots of ways where we try to make it all about the things that we do, 
right? But there are good works that accompany salvation where we're so glad that we have been forgiven and we want to be able to start to model the generosity of our King that it changes how we live our lives. And it's almost as if, like, God gives us this built-in radar that's supposed to lock in on the needs of other people, right? So most of us, right, I mean, we, we live right here. We live in our own world, and we live aware of our own needs. But what God wants us to do is to look to those that are in need among us. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Like, don't do this for the approval and the praise of people, right? And that's really easy to do. I mean, there's the, the world's model today, right? People do give large checks, but they want you to know that they give large checks and they get their names on the sides of buildings and stadiums because they want to celebrate what they have done. God says in this context, they've already received their reward. But the kingdom of God is supposed to be totally different. He says, I don't even want you to let your, 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 your left hand and your right hand know what you're doing. And he's saying, don't do this to be like the hypocrites, but don't do this for yourself either. Right? This, is, this is about doing this for the Father who is in secret and will reward you. Right? This isn't for other people. This isn't so that we can build up ourselves and feel, get, you know, feel good about ourselves because we gave a check. This is about becoming a group of people that love to reflect who their Father is. This is the primary way that God meets people in the world. The primary way that He meets the needs of people is through His people, right? The main way that God serves the world is through His people. The main way that He meets the needs of the world is through His people, right? And so we want to be those kinds of people that are available and listening for God to come and to work among us. The reward He mentions reward three times in these four verses. He wants us to be a group of people that knows that he is a rewarder of those who want to reflect him. Now, that doesn't mean that you get a BMW, right? But it does mean that God himself becomes the reward. He is the treasure. But I have seen this. There is a sowing and reaping principle that I have witnessed in over 20 years of following Jesus. I have watched people faithfully give over time, that wanted to give. And I've watched them sow, and I've watched God entrust more to them so that they could give more, right? And God does that inside the church of Jesus Christ so that we can spur one another on to love and to good works, right? So that we can be that kind of people that actually want to be generous. Not those that, that, you know, begrudgingly give, but those that celebrate the grace and the mercy of God. So the focus of these verses are those in need. So in the early church, there were no needy among them. And I think that should be the norm inside the church of Jesus Christ, where we are not only looking to our own interests, but we're looking to the interests of other people. But then I think there's this coming together, and this is what we're shooting for and aiming for, that God would come and that he would allow us to conspire together to what it would mean to be a radically generous people. Imagine if we just did this for one week. We lived like the early church. We said, here's, here's everything that I have. 
Let's, let's see what we can do, right? That, that would be a radical reorientation. And that makes most of us uncomfortable because we love living in our own stories. But this would mean coming together and saying, listen, all that I have belongs to you. And honestly, inside the church, it's like all that I have belongs to you, right? And we're going to use those things to see the kingdom go forward. So there's a real opportunity for those that give in secret. And I want to I want to I want to bring a couple of things to mind. It's a it's a chance to illustrate the God who sees in secret. I'll give you a couple of stories. So I, I'm in my early 20s. I'm on an airplane with Jen and I'm sure we had a couple of kids at the time. And I'm reading a book. I remember I remember the book. It was called Christ Centered Preaching. And I, was, I knew that I felt called to be a pastor. And I was kind of thinking about it. And I, I even think on the flight, there were tears in my eyes, like really wondering, can I do this? Like, have you called me to do this? Or is this just something that's my own idea, my own initiative? And as I was getting off the plane, like somebody came up to me and they had tears in their eyes. And I, I can't remember if it was an envelope they gave me, or they just gave me cash, but they just said, hey, I'm supposed to give this to you, right? And at that time, it wasn't that much money. I mean, I think it was like $20, right? But for me, at that point in my life, like, what it illustrated to me was, God was saying, I see you. Like, I hear what you're asking. Will I take care of you? Yes, I will take care of you, right? And there are people in this room right now that need to know that God sees them in secret, right? That's what you see like when, when Hagar goes out from Abraham in the Old Testament. That's where God is revealed as the God that sees. He's like, I see you. I see you in, in your need and I'm going to take care of you. And the primary way he wants to take care of the needs of the city is through his people. And we have a chance in that to say God sees you. So when we're listening to the Spirit, we can be those kinds of people that models the kingdom of God. But it also, like, when we don't blast trumpets about what we're doing, right, it also gives us this opportunity to preserve the dignity of those that we're giving to, right? I'll give another illustration. So I grew up, um, and I'll I'll say this carefully, um, I had more than people around me had, but we were all very poor, (laughs) and I remember there... I went to this school, and there was this one wealthy family, and my mom was friends with this lady, and they dropped off a, a bag of clothes at my house, and I was so proud to have these clothes, you know. Um, they were designer labels, things that I had never had in my life, and I, I remember just being overly excited I don't know if this would happen now, to be honest, because everything's vintage, right? You just put that tag on it, and it's cool. Well, when I was in the sixth grade, it wasn't cool. And um, so I get this bag of clothes. And what I failed to realize and when I was in the sixth grade is that I went to a very small school, and everybody recognized that I couldn't have clothes like that. And, you know, they made me feel less than in that moment, and they recognized where those clothes had come from. And there just was this, you know, just this deep shame that was attached to, you know, possessions and someone giving, right? 
And so I think, you know, I mean, there comes a point, I've been around the world where dignity goes out the window, to be honest, and people just need things. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti. We're going to talk about how we can love and serve them. Just need to pray. But we, when we give in secret, it, it gives a chance to maintain and not put people in each other's debt. And so we just want to be careful. And the way that, and, and you don't have to do it the way that I do it. But in that moment, like just being in the sixth grade, God did something in my heart that said, I want to be able to preserve the dignity of people like when I give. And so I don't, if I'm going to give to someone in need, I try to do my absolute best, you know, like treat them as if they are in my family. I'm not, this isn't just an opportunity to kind of clean out the things that I don't need, right, in my own home and and give those things away. But like, can I really get inside their story? Can I bless them? Can I remind them of the generosity of God. And so we, we just want to think about, I mean, there, there are times to just give to people in need, but we want to make sure that we are not just, you know, this is not just a chance to organize our closets. This is a chance to give and reflect the generosity of God. It also says in the Sermon on the Mount to give to those who ask of you. And I've tried to make that my normal practice. If someone asks, because that's what the scripture says, I give it to them. And does, do I ever get taken advantage of? Absolutely, right? But the, the reality is we want to be those kinds of people, big ways, small ways, that reflect the generosity of God. I'm not trying to make my practice your practice, but I am saying you need to have a practice of what does it look like to try to reflect the generosity of God and give in secret. This really is tied to the way that we view God. Either we view God as generous and owning everything and full of abundance, or we have more of a scarcity mentality that he's somehow withholding from us. And uh, the way that we view money and finances is a direct reflection of what we believe about God. This isn't about the size of our bank accounts, but it is about our own grasp and appreciation of the generosity of God in and through the gospel. So that's point number one. Now I want to move into the next point. This is where this comes from. Kingdom-oriented generosity is fueled by kingdom-oriented vision. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So these two sections, they go together and they complement each other brilliantly. The first thing that Jesus says, there is a heart and a treasure connection. 
right? Normally, we would think like our heart, um, our treasure follows our heart. So we go after the things that we want. But what Jesus is communicating is different. Our heart follows our treasure. So the good news is like if you are cold towards kingdom things, right? If you're here and you are apathetic about the gospel going forward around the world, Jesus gives you a promise. If you invest in the kingdom of God in a generous way, your passion for the kingdom of God will go up. So I'll use this as an example, right? I mean, just imagine, I, gave, I don't have it to give to you, so you can relax, but if I gave everyone in this room $1,000 today, and said, okay, you have to buy one stock tomorrow. You can buy Google, you can buy Amazon, you know, you can buy Walmart, you can buy your brother-in-law startup tech company out west. It doesn't matter, but you are going to have to invest this $1,000 into the stock market. What do you think your attention to the stock market would do over the coming days, right? It would grow. And so the, the principle at work here is when we invest in kingdom endeavors, like our vested interest in the kingdom goes up. And so this is a way for us to grow in our um, passion for the kingdom is by having our hearts follow our treasure. So if we are people that radically invest into the kingdom of God, our passion becomes the kingdom of God. Now, this is different than just writing a check or being faithful. And to those of you that do that, I thank you. This is meaningful. But for your own discipleship, I mean, this is a conscious kingdom of God activity. And, and honestly, and I don't, I don't want to make myself the hero, but some of the most meaningful times I've ever had in my whole life is, is writing checks for the glory of God for things that I believe in, right? I get to do that on our behalf as a local church. I get to do that like on my own finances. And it is a joy because then you become vested and you're like, not only am I just like cheering somebody along, but I'm, you know, like putting my money where my mouth is. And I'm saying, I want you to go. I want you to know how much I believe in you, right? So that is the opportunity that we all have. So there's a heart-treasure connection, and then there's this vision component that Jesus is teaching on. He says, when the eye or your vision is healthy, then your whole body or your entire life will be healthy. If your vision is bad, then your entire life will be full of darkness. Now, oftentimes when people teach this, they teach it as, as though they're talking about sexual purity or not looking at bad things, and certainly you could apply it to that, but it's very clear that this is about a vision that you have with your eyes about the kingdom of God. So if your vision is for kingdom-oriented success, then your whole life is going to be healthy. Your money is going to follow and everything's going to fall into place. But if your vision is not the kingdom and your vision is more on your own little kingdom and the things that you can do, then it says your whole life is going to be full of darkness. And so there's this contrast. The way that we grow in our generosity is having a view of what kingdom-oriented success looks like. And so, going to have gospel community tonight. Like, this is what we're going to talk about. What is your vision for kingdom-oriented success? Because we won't just drift into this reality. It, it takes some real prayer. Like, this, this, is, this may sound morbid, okay? But, like, we should spend some time thinking about, like, writing our own obituaries, you know, like when all of this is said and done, right, what, what do I want to be left? You know, what, what do I want to be the impact of my life, whether that's 10 years from now or 
50 years from now, I want to be able to reflect, right? This is, this is what we did with the stewardship that God has given us. So we want kingdom-oriented generosity to flow from kingdom-oriented vision. I had this one mentor. He was super wise. He's a little bit harsh. <laughs> and he said, everything that you want right now, right, that's not people-oriented, is eventually going to the trash heap, you know? I mean, the technology that we crave, the new car that we think will bring us status and desire, eventually all of it is going to go into a landfill. In the Old King James, I think it gets at the heart of this a little bit better. If you've heard that translation, it says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a spiritual reality, right? It's, it's the love of money that, that people buy into. And the United States of America has bought into it hook, line, and sinker to where this, this is what success is. This is what you can measure your life by. This is where happiness comes from. So listen to this. See if you can identify spiritual forces at work in the United States. John Tyson says this in his book, Rumors of God. He says, after World War II, marketers, manufacturers, and economists got together and talked openly about how they could get Americans to become obsessive consumers. There's nothing wrong with consuming, but obsessive consumers. The outcome was a two-pronged strategy that had a dramatic effect on American life. First, planned obsolescence is worked into the manufacturing of goods that we buy. Products are designed to wear out quickly and then be thrown away. So with careful research and experimentation, manufacturers conspired to design poor quality products that after a short period we are conditioned to happily replace. Although we occasionally say things like they don't make them like they used to, we have come to expect that this is simply the way things are. And then next, there is perceived obsolescence. This is the idea of fashions and trends. Trends in many ways dictate our cultural ebb and flow. Based on a fear of being left out and being left behind, we feel immense pressure to keep up with the fashionable moment. Styles are continually changing. Technology is continually evolving. And the missing out motivates us to purchase regardless of the current state of our goods. Right? That's the air that we breathe, right? Only reason I bring your attention to that is because those are the spiritual forces that are vying for our heart. The only thing that can free us from that is a love and a power that is much deeper than that. We need actually supernatural help to be able to open our eyes because, listen, most of us, most of the time, are like the people that are plugged into the matrix. Like, it's just what we know. And, and God wants to free us to be a group of people, not that we despise possessions, we don't, we're not taking a vow of poverty, but we're saying, I recognize that this in and of itself has no power, but I can use this, and I can become a steward so that we can point people to the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, don't be hoodwinked, there is a treasure that can ultimately free you and satisfy you, and that comes from participating in his kingdom. Tim Keller, he tells us the way out. He says this. He says, Jesus gave up all his treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. 
Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security. You will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on His costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how He poured out His wealth for you. Now, you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Now you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us is not just to redouble our efforts and follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in Him, and then living out the changes that understanding makes in your heart, the seat of your mind, your will, and emotions. This is about freedom. This is about God unentangling our hearts from things that weigh us down. Most of our fears and worries and anxieties are tied to material possessions and the fear of the loss of them. God wants to give us a picture of Him as the one who is ruling and reigning over the universe and ruling and reigning over our life. The one that gave up His Son generously for us so that we can believe and trust in Him with all things. Listen, I know that what I'm saying is absolutely countercultural. Some of you are modeling this in a wonderful and a beautiful way. I've had several people over the, the last several weeks come up to me wanting to bless other people. And there's nothing that brings me more joy as a pastor. But listen, for, for this to become more than just isolated individuals, for this to become a movement, and that's what we're praying, right? This means all of us taking inventory and stock. And I, and I have to admit, my, my wife and I, we've, we've been walking through a season of repentance, like in this area where we have put too much hope in material things and the, the things that they can buy us, right? And so there's rich forgiveness, and she's in children's ministry, but she would tell you there is more joy in thinking about ways to be generous than there is things to spend on ourselves. So listen, I'm not saying this as somebody that gets it right all the time, but I am saying that there is power and there's joy in the God who wants to free us. So a couple of uh, questions just for application, then we'll close. Do you have a vision of kingdom success that's reflected in your generosity? Like, Do you have a strategy of what it would be like to grow in this area of discipleship? Or is it just, you know, we're going to take it as it comes? Next, who is God calling you to expose to His generosity? Who is God calling you to expose to his generosity? There are people in all of our paths that we have an opportunity to expose to his generosity. And then just this is tied to your view of God. Do you primarily view him as a God of abundance or a God of scarcity? Do you see him as one that can abundantly meet your needs and it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom? Or do you think he's withholding? And and if it's the, the latter, I mean, that Tim Keller quote is meant to be ministry and freedom where he says, listen, I want to expose you to the generosity of God, the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that through him he might also graciously give us all things. And just think, 
as we close, what it would be like if we began to conspire together to be generous people towards the world. Think about the fame of Jesus in our city, that, that we are a group of people that are not mastered by the love of money, that we are mastered by the kingdom of Christ, and we long to see that go forward. And that's what we're praying for, both here in Jonesboro, in Haiti, in Nepal, in India, and everywhere that God would allow us to go. Let's pray. God, thank you for your generosity towards us. Thank you that it cannot be measured. I pray that as we become kingdom disciples, that you would help us to be radically generous. Father, I pray that you would free us from the love of money. I pray that you would free us from finding our security and our identity in the things that we own. I pray that you would help us to find our identity as sons and daughters of the king. I pray that you would make us into a a people that love to give in secret, that we love to see your kingdom go forward. Thank you for your kindness towards us in and through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.